Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 to 13 and 18 to 26. Matthew writes, he says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth and said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And while he was saying these things, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly... The woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through, through all that district. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would, let's start with prayer this morning. Lord God, we give you thanks and we give you praise for this day. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our sleep and into the gathered worship of your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the songs this morning, Lord, our confession, Lord, of our sin this morning, Lord. And so we pray, God, as we continue to worship you through your word and through confession and through singing and Eucharist, Lord, that you would be honored by our worship and Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to believe and to understand and to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, most of us know this, um, mainly because we look at it multiple times a week, but our lectionary that we use, which is the case really for most lectionaries, is split into a three-year cycle that is simply labeled A, B, and C. I've got a purpose for giving you this information. And so what this does is simply to help us and help a church and each believer make their way through the entire Bible over the course of a three-year period. If they combine the Sunday readings along with all the other readings in the lectionary throughout the week, right, with their regular daily Bible reading. And so each of these three years also follow a particular synoptic gospel, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sometimes... John is regularly also peppered in where he's appropriate, right? And obviously John is always appropriate. The point being is for, you know, certain days John is peppered in. That's the point. 
So we are currently, and here's the point of me giving you all this information, we are currently in year A, which means that the majority of our gospel readings come from the gospel of Matthew. And so I've been thinking over the last few weeks, and I've had a couple of conversations about this, but at least when I'm preaching through the course of all of ordinary time this year, which means today until Christ the King Sunday, right after Thanksgiving, or before Thanksgiving, I forget, we are going to just hang out with this tax collector turned disciple and just stay in the Gospel of Matthew and make our way through his entire Gospel as much as we can over the course of ordinary time. And so the reason I'm thinking this is, is simply this. By sticking with Matthew's Gospel for such a long stretch, this will be the next six months, so it'll be a long stretch, right? It will enable us to see really very helpful themes that build out of what he started last week when we looked at the Great Commission on Trinity Sunday. And so if you'll remember from last week, and I know Matthew puts it at the very end, and he puts it at the very end for a specific reason, because Christ ascended to the Father right after giving the Great Commission. But last week we established that the Great Commission really becomes the thesis. It becomes the purpose statement for the church. It's our directive for the church as we live between the advents of the Lord Jesus. And so now that we have been empowered by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, to live out this new creation commission, this new creation mandate, we are now able to go and to be fruitful and multiply by making disciples and baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded us. And so as we come then to Matthew 9 here, this passage that's in our bulletins, we see very quickly that there are three major events that occur within these few short verses that Matthew draws our attention to. We see that Jesus calls Matthew himself to be a disciple, then he raises the daughter of a local synagogue ruler from the dead. And most of us would assume, at least from the other Gospels, that this is probably Jairus or Jairus, however you want to pronounce his name. This is his daughter, right? Matthew just doesn't name it. And then the other one is that he heals a woman who has been plagued with a discharge or a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years. But Matthew, what he does very interestingly, is he frames all three of these major events around verses 12 and 13 which reads like this again. He says, But when he heard it, he said to the, to, the, to the Pharisees, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Now scholars and commentators vary on their opinion on this, but I firmly believe that everything we just read in this passage, and it includes verses 14 through 17, which aren't included, where the disciples of John the Baptist come and talk to him about fasting. I think all of this happens within the same time frame. This all happens around the table at Matthew's house after he calls Matthew. And because all of this takes place in such a short window of time, what Matthew is really doing as well is helping us to see how verses 12 and 13 informs our understanding of the Great Commission as we move forward into ordinary time. And so because... Verses 12 and 13 are the key verses, if you want to give key verses to this passage. Those are the two verses I want to hang out in this morning. Right? So we're going to hang out there. We'll frame everything else around it. We'll draw stuff in where we need to, but I just want to hang out in those verses. And I want us to dig into it or chew on it like a really annoying piece of taffy. Right? I want it, I, Sharon and I were having this conversation last night. When we were on vacation a couple weeks ago, I bought some ta taffy from one of the taffy places in the mountains. Right? Because I am one of those few people that love fake banana flavor. I think it's great, right? And so I love banana taffy. And so I bought a collection of, 
assorted taffy, and there was not one piece of banana in it. And so I realized afterwards that you could just get one flavor, and so I'm going to do that next time we're there. But, but yeah, and Laffy Taffy banana. I love it. I think it's great. Um, but the day we bought it, I had a couple of pieces of chocolate or marshmallow or something, and I strained my jaw because taffy is so hard to chew, right? And it hurt up until this past week. Like, it hurt for weeks. I thought I'd, like, killed a tooth or something, right? So what I want to do with verses 12 and 13, and I give that silly illustration for this point, is I want us to chew on it so much that it hurts our jaw for weeks, right? I want us to really think about these verses over the next few weeks. So what exactly is going on then in this passage? What's going on in our, in our text for today? What's the setting? Well, again, as we've read in verses 9 through, 13, uh, excuse me, 9 through 11, Jesus has just called Matthew, who was a tax collector. And now he's eating with more tax collectors, and he's eating with people who are classified as simply sinners. In first century Judaism, especially from a Pharisaical point of view, this is not a good thing, right? This, is, this, this ain't good. Right? The Pharisees are extremely unhappy with this. But it leads to Jesus' response in these two verses. And he actually gives them really three responses. So let's break down these two verses with three responses. And the first one that he gives to their grumbling is this. And it's at the beginning of verse 13. He just says, go and learn. There's an interesting detail in verses 11 and 12 that is very easy to overlook if you're not paying attention. The Pharisees, again, they are absolutely enraged, which they seem to be in all the Gospels, pretty angry all the time at Jesus, right? Um, but they're enraged because of who he's eating with. But notice in verse 11, they call him something. They said this, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They call him teacher. So they're, they're perfectly happy to admit that he is a rabbi, that he's a teacher. Now, partly because he has been gathering students, which was the habit of rabbis, right? They go around and say, come under my teaching and let me teach you what I know. But also, and at least in Matthew's gospel, we have also just gotten a little beyond the Sermon on the Mount. So he has been doing some pretty major teaching. So they're more than willing to call him a teacher. And so since they are perfectly content to understand him to be a rabbi... He says, all right, fine. I'm a teacher. I'm going to teach you a little bit. Or to use the southern slang, I'm going to learn you something. right? <laughs> and so he says this. He says, go and learn. And so if they were angry with him before, this had to have sent them into an absolute flying fit. Because in the face of their grumbling about his conduct, just simply eating a meal with people, what Jesus does is he throws down a gauntlet. And he says, go and learn. This was a phrase used by rabbis in order to instruct their students to go and study the text further and understand what it really means. Basically, he's telling them, you're wrong. Go and learn it. And what this statement does is it sends to them a clear message. It says, those who are going to pride themselves in having a knowledge of Scripture but also who are going to publicly boast that their conduct is conforming to Scripture, well, then they should go and they should learn what Scripture actually is talking about. Essentially, he's saying this. He's saying, children, children, you need to go study more, right? Go home, run along off home, 
study a little more, and then come back and try the test again because you failed. And so, what does he tell them then to go and to learn? Well, he tells them this. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So where does this come from? Well, this comes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Most of our Bibles... Uh, give us little cheat sheets and tell us, right? But if, you're, if you don't have a clue, then it's in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. So, to understand then how verses 12 and 13, as these key verses of this text, inform our Great Commission thesis of ordinary time, we need to get to the bottom of what Jesus is saying and why. So let's do the legwork, right? And let's go all the way back to Hosea. So, I believe Hosea is the first of the minor prophets, and so if you get to the major prophets, meaning Daniel, I believe, is right before Hosea, then you've gone too far. And if you get to Joel, you've gone too far the other direction. So he's right in the middle of the minor and the major prophets. So all that to say, we will read Hosea 6 in a moment. But let me back up. You don't have to read this. Let me back up to Hosea 5 and give you the context behind Hosea 6. Because all of this informs why Jesus pulls Hosea 6.6. 6 the way he does. He's not pulling it out of context. He understands exactly what's happening. And so he is going to tell the Pharisees this, and it informs why he tells them this, but also how it informs these two verses. So in Hosea 5, God directs his attention then towards the apostate priests of Israel and Judah. And so apostate here meaning simply someone who has abandoned the faith, right? There was actually, just to give you a little church history nerddom, um, there was a, a Roman emperor a few decades after uh, Constantine. His name was Julian. And he is known historically as Julian the Apostate because he tried to take the Roman Empire back to the worship of the Roman gods. Right? So, so there's, you, there's your little church history like, for the day, right? You can go home and you know, win at Jeopardy. But so these men had abandoned the faith, right? These priests were supposed to be, hence, to pick up on that stress, right? They were supposed to be caring for the spiritual well-being of Yahweh's people. But they had utterly failed in their duty to teach them and to protect them. That sounds pretty familiar given the context of Matthew 9, right? So to use New Testament terminology, these men had failed to rightly shepherd the flock of God. They had failed to disciple the people of God rightly. Instead, they had become the wolves in sheep's clothing. And they had ensnared both Israel and Judah in sin and in lies, in false worship. To put it a very succinctly, these men were bad pastors. So then, in chapter 6 of Hosea, they actually respond to God. In chapter 5, God is talking to them. And so at the very first part of chapter, uh, chapter 6, they respond to God. But they respond with a little bit of false repentance. And they say this. They say, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Now, that all sounds pretty good, right? That sounds like a good bit of repentance, right? right? There's even some Christology in Hosea 6, too, right? He says, they say this, they say again, on the third day he will raise us up. You can pick out a Christological meaning there, right? This is all the right words you say 
when you want to repent. But notice in verse 4, the speaker changes. And it goes back to the Lord God. He's not buying it. He knows, to put it bluntly, that they're full of hot air. Right? And so we could probably try to give them an A for effort, but frankly, right, they are trying to dupe the creator of the universe. So good, you know, good luck with that. Right? So look how God responds in verse 4. He says this, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. The message paraphrase reads it this way. He says, Your declarations of love last no longer than morning mist or pre-dawn dew. Meaning, there's no substance to their repentance. right? There's no substance to their worship of God. Basically, they're faking it. right? They're phonies. And God knows it. Hebrews 10.31 tells us, it says, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is a terrifying place to be in, in Hosea chapter 6, verse 4. And so in verse 5, God says this. In response to that, he says, look, your love is no, lasts no longer than pre-morning dew. And so he says this, therefore... I have hewn them, hewn both Ephraim or Israel and Judah. I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. So he has tried to shake them awake, right, with the prophets. And he has declared his words, both of his covenant with them, his love of them, and his judgment that will come upon them by the use of these prophets. But they haven't listened, right? They haven't paid attention. They haven't followed his commands, and they have not responded back to him with the love and loyalty that he has shown to them. Instead, they continue to reject Yahweh. And they continue to abandon the covenant that he had made with them. He was their God. And they were supposed to be his faithful bride. This covenant can be understood like a marriage contract. This is really one of the major points of God using Hosea to marry Gomer, who was a prostitute, right? It's, it's a great illustration of how Israel treats her God. And they were supposed to be a faithful bride. Instead, they had prostituted themselves to the other gods of the people of the land. And what Yahweh wants from his people, what he's telling them here, is he wants from his people, and he still wants this from his people now, is not a false declaration of love. You would be hard-pressed to find any human being through the history of humanity that wants a relationship with someone who pretends to love them. Nobody wants that. God is no different. But we constantly treat him like he is different in that way. God wants our love. He wants our affection. He wants our attention. And so he says this to them in verse 6. This is what Jesus quotes to the Pharisees. What he desires is steadfast love or mercy, if you're looking at the Septuagint, and not sacrifice. He desires a knowledge of himself rather than a burnt offering. He wants us to have a love of him that has substance to it, right? that has meaning behind it, that lasts longer than the mist of the morning. right? A love that is not shown by just words, but by actions. James writes this in chapter 2, and I'm reading from the message because I like how Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, Dear friends, 
Do you think you're going to get anywhere if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. But then walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup? Where would that get you? Isn't it obvious that faith without actions is an outrageous nonsense? God wants his people to love him because he loves us. He wants his people to know him, not pretend to know him. And so he says in verse 7, he says, and then this is the last verse we'll read in this chapter. He says, but like Adam, they, Israel and Judah, their priests, they have transgressed the covenant. They have transgressed my marriage contract with them. And there they dealt faithlessly with me. He says again, you're a bunch of cheaters. You're fakes and you're liars. You don't love me and you don't know me. So, go back to Matthew 9 and consider all of that again. Listen again, just verses 9 to 13, starting at the beginning. Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Tax collectors in this society in first century Judaism were some of the most despised people at all. They hated tax collectors. But even more so, they hated Jewish tax collectors because they cooperated with the Romans. And most tax collectors, and some of them being Jewish, would extort people for more money, right? They were greedy, right? And so not only were they traitors, but they were unclean traitors. They were the worst of the worst. But then sinners, if you can believe it, were almost even considered to be worse. So keep this context from these religious leaders in mind, right? Jesus is reclining at a table with people who are traitors and unclean, but also people like prostitutes and thieves, and liars, and whatever else you want to say. These people, all of these people, commonly broke pharisaical regulations and customs. These people were unclean completely. Jesus, by sitting with them, and especially by accepting a tax collector as his disciple, offends them to the point of outrage. And he, in their mind, he has made himself unclean because he has associated with the unclean. And the Pharisees, when Jesus says this in verse 13, they would have known immediately the context behind Hosea 6. They would have known chapters 1 through 5. They would have known where the rest of Hosea goes. And they would have known immediately what Jesus was implying. He was comparing their outward appearance to their public displays of obedience, like not 
sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners. He was comparing that with the exact same offenses of Israel and Judah and even Adam himself. When they all abandoned the covenant that Yahweh had made with them by his grace and by his mercy and by his love. And like Israel and Judah of old, there was no substance to the Pharisees' illusion of obedience to God's word. But even still, they want an answer to their question, right? Which again is, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so Jesus offers a third level to his response at the end of verse 13. He says this, excuse me, back up to verse 12 and then go to 13. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. His defense is very simple. He goes exactly where people need a doctor. So now we're getting to the heart of this whole key verses here. But notice what Jesus is both saying and not saying with these two phrases. And this is really of paramount importance in our own culture today, where we throw around buzzwords like inclusion and diversity and equity and love and acceptance. Right? Jesus declares here in these verses, this is going to get me canceled right when it goes online, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> Jesus declares that he is a merciful physician who has come to heal the sick. He has come to those who have been rejected by society, who have been outcast by their own people. He has come to those who, have, who are hated by the elite of the elite. He has gone to those who do not rank or who do not register on the radars of those who consider themselves to be religious. He has come to bring health to the sick who need a doctor. And his healing, and we've seen this in Matthew's gospel already, before the Sermon on the Mount and then after the Sermon on the Mount, and even in this own text, his healing of those who are physically sick is always intended to be connected with his healing of the spiritually sick. The sick need a doctor, and Jesus healed them. Likewise, the sinfully sick need a doctor. They need mercy, and they need forgiveness, and they need grace and they need restoration, and Jesus heals them, and he continues to do so now. And But notice here, as in all of Scripture, there is not one hint that Jesus went to sinners because they wanted him. He went to them because they were sinners. Just like a doctor makes a house call to the patient who is sick. And the point... This point here is, again, it's of paramount importance in our culture. Jesus does not leave the spiritually and sinfully sick in their sickness. To use the language familiar to our own time and our own culture, Jesus does not affirm them in their sin or in their sinful identities. What Jesus does is he heals them and then he makes himself their identity in order to make them well and to make them holy as he is holy. And so he tells the Pharisees, he says, I did not come to call those who are righteous. I came to call those who are sinners. The earthly ministry of Jesus was characterized by mercy and the pursuit of those who are sick in sin. 
the, this phrase to call here can also mean to invite. And so by reading all of Matthew's gospel, which we are planning to do over the course of the next few months, right? We can understand here that Jesus eats with sinners because he accepts sinners where they are. But he doesn't leave them in their sin. He does not affirm them in their sin. He doesn't allow them to remain where they are. Acceptance and affirmation is not the same thing. That's the phrase that will get me canceled. (laughs) I don't have to affirm your sin, but I can accept you and call you to faith in Christ. And by drawing their attention, by drawing the, the, the Pharisees' attention, and by drawing our own attention to Hosea, Jesus is reminding all of us that the apostate nation, while following the letter of the law, while following the sacrifices, they had forgotten the heart of the law, which is mercy. Jesus was telling them that they were no different than the apostate nation of Israel before the exile because they were clinging too tightly to the letter of the law, but they had lost the heart of the law. And his proof was their own attitude toward those who they considered to be unclean. So, how does all of this help inform this thesis of the Great Commission? Right? Basically, if, if you're... If you're looking for the application point, right? How do we apply this, right? Notice here how the entirety of this text with verses 13, excuse me, 12 and 13 as the focal point, it centers on centers, excuse me, let me enunciate that T there. It centers on two responses to Jesus' statement. It centers on Jesus' response of mercy, but also on the response of the faith of those who turn to Jesus. And both are examples for us as we live out the Great Commission. So notice again in verses 9 through 13, Jesus calls Matthew, but then Matthew actually gets up, right? He leaves his job. He leaves his livelihood, and he follows after Christ. He follows immediately. But his response to Jesus in faith doesn't end there. He then and he, calls, he goes and calls his friends. He calls his coworkers. He calls his social group, meaning tax collectors and sinners. He's been outcast. Who is he going to hang out with? Other outcasts, right? So he invites them to come to his home for a meal and to meet this rabbi who has just asked him, of all people, a tax collector, to be his student. Meals in this society were important occasions, right? These were important social occasions, and they were public occasions. So they would have been eating this meal in a courtyard that people walking by the street would have seen, which is why the Pharisees see it, which is why this ruler sees it, which is why... John's disciples come up and talk to him about fasting. All of this is very public. And who you ate a meal with defined who your social group was. So to share a meal was to literally share life with someone. And it gave a public declaration declaration that a person was accepted in your group if you were to invite them to a meal. So don't miss this massive display of mercy from Jesus in this moment of reclining at the table with Matthew and other tax collectors and sinners because he accepts Matthew's hospitality and the great physician shows his own hospitality by going into the home of a sick tax collector in order to heal the sick of his entire social group. And while that example would be more than enough for us to chew on over the rest of the next couple of weeks, notice that these responses of faith and mercy continue through the rest of the passage. And I'm just going to reference them, right? The ruler of the synagogue comes up and kneels before Christ, begging him, look, my daughter has just died, but I have faith that a simple touch from you 
could raise her back to life. So Jesus gets up from the table and follows him to his home and raises his daughter from the dead. And then while he's on his way, a poor woman who has been dealing with a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years, blood has been pouring out of this woman's body. Doctors can't fix it. We learn from the other Gospels that she has spent every dime of her money to try to get herself healed, and, it does, and it, nothing has worked. She is as unclean as unclean can be, according to the Levitical law. And she sees Jesus. And she has a very, very tiny speck of faith. If the faith of a mustard seed can move mountains, this woman must have had a smaller amount of faith. Because she has this faith that by just simply coming up behind him, sneaking up behind him and just touching his robe for a split second would heal her. But Jesus picks up on it. In this text, he doesn't feel the power go out of it. He notices it before it even happens. She grabs his robe and he turns around and in mercy and in love, he declares, he says, look, your faith in me and in who I am has made you well, not touching my robe. So daughter, the only time he says this, daughter, your faith has made you well. And immediately, I think the KJV says, from that hour, she was healed. Here's the point. Here's the application. Jesus' earthly ministry was one of salvation. Meaning that sinners were and still are his focus. And we as his bride, we as his body, as those whom he has called and chosen and redeemed in himself, as his ambassadors to the world, as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians, we have been sent out and empowered by the name of our triune God. And so Jesus' mission is now our mission. His example of mercy is an example that we are to follow. And while we do not have the power to redeem, we do have the power to invite sinners, just as Jesus invited sinners. And the very simple faith of these three believers in this text serves as an example that we are to follow as we trust him to do that hard work of making a living heart out of a dead one as we go and we make disciples. And we can gladly accept sinners where they are while knowing that Christ never affirms someone in their sin, but he invites them to repent and to be baptized in, to be identified with, and to be empowered by the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let me read you this passage from Luke chapter 10. And then we will come to the table. Luke writes, Behold, a lawyer stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, There was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he had come to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
but a Samaritan, who was hated more than tax collectors and sinners, by the way. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The man who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise.